On Wednesday, February 14th, the House Intelligence Committee's official Twitter account, or X account, or whatever we're calling it these days, published a statement by Representative Mike Turner, the Ohio Republican who chairs the committee. The statement read, Today, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has made available to all members of Congress information concerning a national security threat. I am requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration, and our allies can openly discuss the actions necessary to respond to this threat. The announcement left news outlets scrambling to uncover what Representative Turner was referring to. Shortly after, reports began surfacing, citing unnamed sources that claimed the intelligence was related to the possible Russian deployment of some kind of nuclear anti-satellite weapon. But even that left open a range of possibilities, from nuclear warheads to an anti-satellite weapon powered by a nuclear reactor. Not long after the announcement, Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, said at a press conference that they had, quote, scheduled a briefing for the House members of the Gang of Eight, being the Republican House Speaker, the top Democrat in the House, and the highest ranking member of each party on the Intelligence Committee. Sullivan went on to say that he was a bit surprised that Congressman Turner had come out publicly ahead of the meeting. The move left many wondering what Turner's motivations were. Some think he wanted to jumpstart the supplemental aid package for Ukraine, while others speculated that Turner might have wanted to make the case for the renewal of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, a surveillance tool that allows the United States to collect emails and other electronic communications, and apparently the tool that allowed the intelligence community to get the information in question. In any case, the United States was concerned enough that it began briefing its allies on the intelligence. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also called on his Indian and Chinese counterparts to use their influence with Russia to prevent any kind of deployment. On the other hand, the New York Times reported that American officials admit they have low confidence in their own analysis of whether Mr. Putin is really prepared to launch a nuclear weapon into orbit. It's worth noting here that the Kremlin has denied these reports, with President Putin saying that Russia's categorically against deploying a nuclear weapon in space, and that he had called for both the observance and strengthening of quote-unquote existing agreements. One of the existing agreements he's referring to is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which bans the deployment and use of weapons of mass destruction in space, something you'll hear about later in the episode. To get an idea of what Russia's capabilities are, what they could be up to, and what the risks of having a nuclear weapon in space might be, I spoke to Pavel Podvig, a senior researcher at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research in Geneva, and also a researcher with his own project, Russian Nuclear Forces, which aims to provide information about nuclear weapons, arms control, and disarmament based on open scientific analysis. I'm Ned Garvey, Medusa in English's social media editor, and this is The Naked Pravda. explain why Russia might want a nuclear weapon in space and what would that look like practically? Also, does Russia have a history with any kind of weapons in space, with nuclear-powered satellites or anything related? If, if we were asking why Russia would want a nuclear weapon in space, I think there is no good answer to that. It's impossible to imagine why would anyone want uh, a nuclear weapon in space. So. There are very many reasons for that, and uh, one is that it's illegal. There is an Outer Space Treaty signed in 1967, 
that actually prohibits exactly this, this kind of deployment. And uh, for a good reason, because A, it's dangerous and B, it doesn't really make any sense on a practical level, however you look at it. Uh, because just to start, you if you deploy weapon, a nuclear weapon in space, then the question is, what do you do with that? Weapons are fairly delicate, relatively delicate engineering objects and uh, they need maintenance. They need, if something goes wrong, you, you, you would want to keep an eye on it. So you cannot do any of that in space. So it's been understood very early on that, no, you, you cannot really practically put a uh, nuclear weapon, deploy nuclear weapon in space and keep it for any period of time there. Also, the question is, okay, assuming that you decided that you don't care or you solve this particular problem, what do you do? You could threaten or you could, if you explode weapon in space and in orbit, then it could damage many things, but the extent of this damage would be totally indiscriminatory. So there is no way you could target it at a specific satellite, for example or a specific constellation of satellites. So what would a nuclear explosion in space look like? How would that be different than a nuclear explosion inside the Earth's atmosphere? The major difference between a nuclear explosion in space and a nuclear explosion in atmosphere or underground is that there is nothing there. The explosion would not generate a shockwave or a mushroom cloud or anything of that kind. What it will generate is the very high intensity gamma radiation as well. But as I understand it, gamma is more prominent in this case. And technically, if you are close to some other satellite, some other object, then that gamma radiation could literally fry the other satellite. So it, it, is, it is entirely possible. If you are a bit farther, I think you could still damage a satellite in a serious way again, by damaging its circuitry and things like that. So that would be the, the major effect. So I think if you are really careful and if you get really close to the satellite that you are really interested in and you choose your explosive, you choose yield of your explosive carefully, you may hope that you could damage these particular satellites and you could, you could fry it and you could, I think technically, I think you could vaporize it if you really want to. However, one thing is that if you can do that, if you could get that close, then you may as well just smash into it. <laughs> there, there is no particular advantage of, uh, using a nuclear weapon to, to do this, uh, this kind of, uh, uh intercept and another issue is that if this explosion, all these gamma rays and all the radiation uh, would create a serious disturbances in the radiation belts uh, that are around uh, the earth, because there were no explosions in space for quite some time. I think the last one was at probably in 62. So it's not very well studied, although it, it has been studied. But the experimental data tell us that that explosion that the United States did in 62, it actually eventually killed what people say a third of all satellites that were in orbit. 
There weren't many of them. There were like 24 and eight died eventually. But you could imagine that today there are thousand satellites. So you can imagine that this kind of disturbance of the radiation uh, belts uh, around, around Earth, that would probably kill quite a few of those because they are not designed to withstand these kind of things. Ironically, in a, in a sense, military satellites would normally be hardened against this kind of effects. There is a slightly smaller chance of actually killing, destroying a dedicated military satellite. And of course, because the effects are not very well studied and they are very hard to predict. And in the end, you literally, you would not have uh, an idea of how many satellites will be damaged in a, in a case like that. So that's the problem with this kind of arrangement. With it not being very predictable, what kind of dangers would that kind of explosion pose to satellites, to people on Earth, to astronauts in space? To people on Earth, uh, probably none, uh, at least not directly, because as I said, not, not, nothing would reach uh, the, the Earth if it is high enough in space, and, uh, and even if it's not high enough, so it's the high altitude explosions don't really do any damage on Earth. With satellites, you, again, if you, if you destroy certain satellites, you lose communication, you lose relay the television, Television, probably not. These are geostationary not normally, but all the optical reconnaissance, and there are many, many missions that are around the Earth. So it's not, would not be as if the weapon exploded on, in the atmosphere or in the Earth, so it, the effect will be distributed, to speak. One other theory that was put forward was that Russia was looking to launch a nuclear-powered weapon, not necessarily a nuclear weapon that would be an anti-satellite weapon. Uh, what do you gauge the likelihood of that being, and what would the capabilities of that kind of weapon be? That is somewhat different mission, somewhat different project. And uh, But let me just step back a bit and say that that is, of course, something that many people thought that's what this is all about. Largely because, as we discussed, the idea of nuclear explosion in space and nuclear weapon deployed in space, it's really, truly insane. We need to be <laughs> clear about that. So people gravitated toward this theory that, no, it may be just a nuclear reactor or a nuclear something that would be nuclear power source that would be deployed to assist, to provide power to some kind of an anti-satellite weapon. However, what we learned and the U.S. officials were on record on that, they said very clearly, and they got pointed, drew attention to it, that this project that's been discussed, it would be a violation of the Outer Space Treaty. And basically, that's the only way you could violate the Outer Space Treaty is to deploy a nuclear weapon in space. That suggests strongly that, yes, we are talking about something that considers or plans to deploy some kind of weapon, explosive device, nuclear explosive device in space. And in fact, as I understand, the New York Times actually reported that not only that kind of project exists, there was some kind of a test in early 22, two years ago. Although they, the intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence community, uh, they 
say they have whole confidence in some of their conclusions, whether this is the decision that were made one way or another, but, but it appears that something is there. What exactly is there? That's an open question. And my hope is that this is some kind of a crazy, almost like on a, on a, on a level of a crazy scientist doing something, putting together some crazy project, which may be the case, but on the other hand, as I said, there, there seems to be something there and there was a test. So it's difficult to fully discount the probability that it is indeed some kind of a research project or even development project of some kind. So that's four. Could you actually speak a little bit more on what, outside of a nuclear weapon, what the possibilities are? You mean outside of a nuclear weapon? If it's, for example, a nuclear reactor powered weapon yeah, yeah. or whatever their anti-satellite capabilities that they may have tested or that they might be working on. Yeah. If we are asking ourselves what's, what can be nuclear in space, then the one answer is that, yes, it, you can imagine that there might be a nuclear power source, a nuclear reactor. And that is something that's been done. And that's nothing particularly new. The Soviet Union operated the entire system of ocean reconnaissance system that actually used satellites with nuclear reactors on, on board. And there were dozens of satellites of this type. So they, there are some requirements in the case of that particular system. The problem was that the satellites had to fly very low and they cannot really rely on the solar panels for power because that they would, the lifetime would be very short. So they used nuclear reactors on board. The problem, of course, uh, once you put a nuclear reactor there, what, what happens uh, when it's, it's, it's done. And uh, yes, there was a scheme to put the, after at the end of the life to move that, these satellites to higher orbit where their lifetime would be extremely long, let me put it that way. However, as should be expected, there, there is also a, always a probability of an accident and there, there was an accident. There was one of the satellites crashed, re-entered and crashed in Canada. And there was very serious, uh, international scandal around that because the Soviet Union had to admit, accept responsibility and actually pay for, uh, some cleanup as I understand it. What he's referring to here is the crash of the Soviet Cosmos 954 reconnaissance satellite. In 1978, the satellite, which was powered by a nuclear reactor, failed. It re-entered the Earth's atmosphere on January 24, 1978, spreading debris across a nearly 400-mile path in Canada's Northwest Territories, Nunavut, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. A joint Canadian-American mission was set up to sweep a 48,000-square-mile area on foot and by air for radioactive debris. Ultimately, they found 12 pieces of the satellite, 10 of which were radioactive. After initially claiming that the satellite was destroyed during re-entry, the Soviet Union paid Canada 3 million Canadian dollars, which is just over 2.2 million USD by today's exchange rate. But as I said, this is not something totally unheard of. So you could, you can deploy a nuclear, a nuclear source whether it's, it could be radiothermal generator, when you just use 
the heat generated by, for example, plutonium-238 and converted into electricity, or it could be like an actual nuclear reactor, which was exactly what the Soviet Union has done. You could imagine that, for example, if you are deploying, I don't know, I'm making this up, so don't, <laughs> don't assume that this is some, something real, but you could imagine that there is this microwave weapon, so very strong microwave generator that you could theoretically, I guess, direct and literally again fry some uh, satellite. Yes, you, the more power you have, the more powerful your weapon is. So that that is something not totally insane, if we put it that way. So they, this is so you could think about these kind of applications. But these things they they also run into a general problem with the anti-satellite capabilities which is that, yes, you can practically, you can actually destroy a satellite on orbit. It's a technically doable task, and it's been demonstrated numerous times, most recently in 21, when Russia actually launched what is called direct ascent interceptor. But then the question is, what does it give it? What do you gain? What's your, what's, it, what's the effect? And the best example is, for example, if you would want to take out the Starlink system, there is more than one satellite there. So you could, it's really, and if you look at many systems of that kind and uh, including the military system, increasingly, they are all very redundant and just taking out one or even several satellites doesn't really disable the system. It doesn't deny your opponent the functionality of the system. So that's not. There's a larger problem with the anti-satellite weapons. If we talk about Starlink, Starlink is a kind of special satellite system, right? Is it possible that these kinds of anti-satellite weapons could have some practical effect on a system like Starlink? I would seriously doubt that because again, with Starlink itself, uh, my understanding is that the safety is in numbers. So there are just what thousands of satellites and they are so it's not, it's not like there are vulnerable nodes that you could target. So unless you are really determined to take out a significant number of the satellites to break down the system, I doubt that damaging the system actually is the possibility. And also if we are talking about the, as maybe some people may have this image, so if you, yeah, if you take a, a nuclear weapon and just there, then yes, this is your chance sort of to take out, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the constellations or something like that. You cannot really take out everything because if they are around the earth, some of them will be hiding <laughs> behind the, behind the earth. So yes, but then the, that's the idea. If you cover a large volume or area in this case, then there are many other satellites there, and so you will be damaging them as well. So there is no kind of a magic nuclear weapon that destroys Starlink only, so that, that it will be it will be killing pretty much everything what is inside. What would you need to cause a significant communications disruption in some kind of infrastructure like Starlink? That I don't know. Uh, I think you would. Yeah, uh, that you, you need to know the architecture of the system uh, better better than than I do but uh, you could you could look at the internet what would it take to disable the internet well the, i mean it was designed literally to withstand the nuclear attack <laughs> so, 
again, as I understand it, you could probably take a look at the at things like failure rates of uh, Starlink satellites. I don't remember if there were failures at launch, but basically you could imagine that engineers definitely counted on a possibility, for example, that a launch of a replacement launch may fail. So that's your reserve, if you will, you could do with, without that replacement. So I think it's definitely dozens of satellites in my view, at least, maybe even more. So I'm getting the sense that you don't really think that any kind of space-based weaponry is practical in its application. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Could you expand a little bit more on, on why space-based weaponry is not practical? No, but that's my, my take on this and uh, is that uh, if certain space systems is really uh, vital for your military operations. And we are actually, the United States may be there when they, when they do rely on space as an essential element of their military operations. If that's the case, then you, like almost automatically, not quite automatically, but almost automatically, you make sure that your system you rely on so much is reasonably redundant. And in fact, one of the factors that work uh, to your advantage is that the opponent, the adversary, cannot really know how redundant it is. So that's the thing. So for example, I, I looked at, at some point, I looked at some proposals that would protect the early warning satellites. And if you, you would think, so these are satellites that are designed and deployed to provide, to detect uh, ballistic missile launches right after launch and sort of give you the warning time to act to, to respond. And uh, those are normally deployed on geostationary orbits, geosynchronous orbits. And this is one of the scenarios that people often discuss. Oh, but what if someone would take out the early warning satellite? But when you start looking at that, you realize that they are, again, they, there is quite a bit of redundancy in the system. Then there are also other sensors on other satellites that do the same job. And in the end, you may somewhat disrupt the capability, but that disruption would literally mean a slightly higher probability of false, false alarm in the case of or closer to real life, if you will, you could look at the GPS or GLONASS system, right? It's a system that includes each of them is what, 24, 30 satellites, and they are distributed in various orbital planes and all that. And we've been there, for example, if you look at the, the GLONASS system as it was being deployed, there were like holes in the system. And those holes manifested themselves as what? In certain areas, during a certain time, the signal was not available. And so, is it truly catastrophic for your, if you are relying on, on that uh, for your military operations? Yes, of course it's not. It's better to have navigation signal than don't, don't not have it. But is it truly catastrophic? Not really. And the same thing with GPS, for example, to really disrupt the system to the extent that it will make military operations less effective, you really need to take out a very significant part of the constellation. So that's the reality. And you could do the same kind of calculation with the communication, for example, and uh, things like that. And more than that, there were 
back, even back in the, I guess in the early nineties, there were reports that the U.S. troops at some point communicated with their headquarters by just calling them on the civilian phone. So there are, you never know what kind of redundancies are there. Are there any land-based, earth-based systems that have the capability to take out satellites probably much more effectively than space-based weapons? Well, again, yes, we know that, well, Russia tested its anti-satellite system as 21. Earlier, India tested an anti-satellite weapon of that kind. Of course, China tested in uh, 2007, and the United States demonstrated the capability in 2008. And the, in the U.S. case, for example, they used the uh, missile defense system uh, deployed on uh, Aegis destroyers. So you can imagine that there is some flexibility. Uh, but of course, the Soviet Union had an operationally deployed anti-satellite system back in the 70s and experimented with other things. But in my assessment of this is that as you look at these systems, they all suffer from the same problem. They are pretty much useless. And that, that was why, for example, the Soviet system was eventually decommissioned because yes, you can destroy a satellite, but uh, in terms of denying your adversary a certain meaningful military capability, that is much harder. And I don't think that any, anybody can actually do that, whether from Earth or from space. So what potentially would be the worst case scenario? I think if, yes, a nuclear explosion in space would be pretty bad. I think that, as I said, this would, would damage a lot of satellites and there will be disruption in various services. In terms of kind of a political fallout, that would also be, I would say, pretty negative development because what it would take Russia leaving the Outer Space Treaty or blatantly violating it or so, that is not something that would create a better international environment, of course. And I hope that somewhere in, in the Kremlin leadership, there is this understanding that basically there, there will be no new friends gained from that kind of an adventure. I hope that this is what just the other day, Russian president met with the Minister of Defense and they both said, no, we are against nuclear weapons space and all that, which is a good sign in my view, because Basically, I do believe that when you create the atmosphere of something being totally irresponsible and inadmissible, uh, I do believe that works even with the current Russian leadership. And uh, in my view, the, the worst case scenario would be that they would just say, well, we don't care and just do it. And certainly it's a, a fait accompli. And they would say, we are ready to take whatever political consequences and everybody will be blaming us, but we showed whatever they wanted to show. Again, I certainly hope that this is the worst case scenario that crosses the line of things that are really unimaginable. But yeah, that would be my idea of a bad development. I think it, it is also imaginable that there will be some deployment and they're almost like James Bond style, sort of you deploy uh, a nuclear weapon in space and then announce it to everyone. Yeah, I have this weapon and I could do whatever. 
if you don't do, I don't know what, that would be pretty bad too. But again, in my view, there, there is enough kind of a good sense in the system, in the international system that would send the signals that no, this is, you don't do this kind of thing. So that's, I still hope that there is some reason somewhere, <laughs> even, even if the experience tells us that that's maybe too optimistic. You and me both. You and me both. So you've mentioned the 1967 Space Treaty a couple times. Could you talk a bit more about what that says about weapons in space, what it prohibits, what it allows? The, the treaty actually has many early treaties. It just says that it prohibits the deployment of weapons of mass destruction in orbit. And it was understood that definitely nuclear weapons are weapons of mass destruction. And that's pretty much it. So that's, there is, yeah, there are no kind of strict definitions there. Definitely there is no verification mechanism. Nobody is looking at your satellites before launch to check that there are no weapons there. To some extent, because that was not possible at the time to agree on something like that, but partly because everybody understood that is a truly stupid idea. And so there was this sense that it was almost like a, a political statement, like a normative statement, which everybody says, yeah, this is a norm. You don't do certain things and you, you don't do them. There was a bit of controversy regarding the question of whether, for example, ballistic missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles that actually traverse the space, whether they are a violation. And people agree that no, not really, because they are not in orbit. Then there was a controversy caused by the system that the Soviet Union tested back in the sixties, uh, the so-called fractional orbital bombardment system, which was a way of delivering a nuclear warhead when you, instead of flying directly to your target along a ballistic trajectory, you basically fly the other way. But to do that, you need to place your payload, your warhead on an orbit, and it makes incomplete orbit. It does not complete their evolution. So it re-enters before it has a chance to complete their, a full revolution around the earth. It's a gray area. It was agreed eventually, sort of, there was a tacit agreement that it's okay. So uh, at least, I mean, there, there's never been a formal agreement, but the United States finally decided that they would not complain about the system and they didn't. But again, in, in the end, it turns out that this system is pretty much useless and it doesn't really make any sense. And the Soviet Union discontinued this program in the late 70s, the last missiles were withdrawn from service. So again, it's, yeah, it, it, the treaty so far has worked pretty well, <laughs> although there are, there are issues there, but in definitely in terms of in terms of deployment of nuclear weapons in space it, it definitely did work but again if you if you have a treaty you don't jump from the roof yeah you don't need a treaty really but you if you have it you i mean you may rely on people not jumping off of the roofs uh, instead of creating a, uh, an elaborate uh, verification mechanism uh, and i think we're yeah we're dealing with this kind of case here one last question. 
Do you think that there are any movies that you've ever seen that could realistically capture what's possible in space now or soon? Not that kind of a movie guy. No, I, I think I, there, there are certainly, uh, I mean, there are many misconceptions about space. And in fact, my colleagues at the Union of Concerned Scientists is a U.S. NGO. They, at some point, they actually put together a volume that basically explained the physics of space or what you can or cannot do, because people have this idea of space from all the movies uh, and things flying and maneuvering. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> so that's, 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 that's true. And, uh, yeah, so I don't think I have a, I have a, I have a, something to recommend here. <laughs> so, sure. So then maybe what are some of the popular misconceptions that you see about space in movies or in film that maybe need to be rectified? For example, like you can maneuver, you could fly your spacecraft as you could turn and you could crawl and all the, all these things are not easy. You literally follow the orbit and uh, changing the orbit is a pretty big deal. It takes quite a bit of energy and yeah, so it, you cannot just jump and come to some kind of a spacecraft and, and just hang around. No, that doesn't work. Is there anything else that you think our audience maybe needs to know? Uh, well, no, I probably, well, there are many things, I guess, but, but I don't know many of them either. So I, one thing that I maybe I want to say is that, and this is something we collectively, and I, I see the, especially in the expert community, sometimes and maybe even often do, when we see things like crazy things coming out of some quarters in Moscow or even in Washington or others, there is this kind of a urge to start thinking, oh, why do they do that? And uh, what is the advantage? I've seen several discussions like, is it Russia trying to compensate for its whatever problems in, with the space industry or something like that? Which are, on some level, these are kind of questions that you can ask, but I would encourage everyone just to step back and start with a very kind of a simple uh, statement that this is insane and this should not be done. And that, I think, creates a better background for a discussion. And I think that kind of a message, this attitude that should also be there, especially in the expert community and in the media as well. If you, yeah, we can talk about how this may or may not work and, and all that. And again, this is a useful discussion, but we need to keep in mind also that the message out there should be first and foremost that A, it is illegal and B, it's really, truly insane. And that's where we start. That's this week's show, ladies and gentlemen. On upcoming episodes, we'll talk about Russian space weapons, gang culture in Russia, the lives of so-called foreign agents, and more. Thank you for tuning in, and please consider making a recurring donation to Medusa to help sustain our work. Until next week.